Do you have an idea for a podcast, but you don't know where to start? Maybe you're overwhelmed by all the tech or you're convinced nobody will actually listen to you. Well, I'm Shauna Game. After nine and a half years as a professional podcaster, at this show, everyone's talking money. And 25 million downloads later, let me tell you the secret to a profitable podcast. It is building a solid foundation, your podcast roadmap before you launch. That's why I created the Podcaster Class, a fast-paced group cohort podcasting for profit eight-week style NBA program. The Podcaster Class is immersive, comprehensive, and insanely motivational. If you want to create a podcast, DIYing a launch is just not the way to go. In the Podcaster Class, you'll get the tools, tips, and strategies to create a podcast that resonates with listeners and one you can be proud of. Get this. 90% of podcasters never make it to episode three. That's 2.8 million podcasters who just quit. So to be a top podcaster, you only need to publish 21 episodes, but you got to make them good. So in the podcaster class, I'm taking the mystery out of how to create, launch, and profit from your podcast so you can create a top 1% podcast just like this one. The May cohort is now open for enrollment. Classes start May 22nd. There are only 15 spots open. You are going to learn podcasting with me and 14 other amazing people. You can learn all the details at thepodcasterclass.com. Use code podcast when you sign up for $100 off. That's thepodcasterclass.com. I'm going to be real with you. Identity theft is on the rise, and you do not want to wake up one morning and discover that your bank account has been emptied or you're overdue on credit cards you never even applied for. We talk about this often on the podcast, but you don't realize how much of your information is available to scammers on the internet and how susceptible you and your family are to identity theft and fraud. I know, it's scary, but now you can get your data removed with Delete Me. That's why I personally choose Delete Me. Delete Me is a subscription service that removes your personal information from the largest people search databases on the web and in the process helps prevent potential ID theft doxing, and phishing scams. I just started using Delete Me and I got my regular personalized privacy report. (laughs) I was shocked what they found and removed. It was pages of information about me that I did not want online. Here's how it works. You sign up and provide Delete Me with exactly what information you want deleted, and their experts take it from there. I cannot tell you how relieved I felt to have Delete Me. And you know, it's also a great service for your parents or grandparents to help protect them from identity theft. Delete Me is not just a one-time service. Delete Me is always working for you, constantly monitoring and removing the personal information you do not want on the internet. Take control of your data and keep your private life private by signing up for Delete Me, now at a special price for my listeners. Today, get 20% off your Delete Me plan when you go to joindeleteme.com slash etm and use promo code etm at checkout. The only way you get 20% off is to go to joindeleteme.com slash etm and enter code etm at checkout. J-O-I-N-D-E-L-E-T-E-M-E dot com slash etm. Go to joindeleteme.com slash etm and use code etm for 20% off. Hey, I'm Shauna Compton-Game. This is Millennial Money, and today we're talking two ways to do money differently with Bank Mobile and Better Mortgage. And I asked Shauna a question, what has my career been like as a female CFP? So today's Ask Shauna question is a little bit differently than the questions that I've answered in the past that have strictly been money questions. This question actually came from Susanna, and she says, Hey, Shauna, I love the podcast. I'm a new listener since January, and I'm excited about all the different topics that you share. 
I'm particularly interested in hearing about your own journey as a certified financial planner as I'm thinking of going down that career path myself, but I'm just not sure whether it's right for me. I'd love to know what it's been like to be a female certified financial planner and any advice that you'd be willing to share. Well, that is a great question, Suzanne. I've actually got a few questions that have come in in the last few months about my own financial planning journey. Uh, There's a lot of you listening that actually are thinking about becoming financial planners and trying to figure out, you know, whether that career shift is the right move for you and how do you make that move and how do you make money when you make that move? And all of those are, you know, amazing questions. And I realize, you know, we've had a lot of new listeners come on board since even just the new year. And, you know, I haven't done a lot of sharing about my own my own journey, my own journey as a certified financial planner and my own money journey myself. So I'm going to make sure and do that in an upcoming podcast as well, just so that you know, I actually am a, a human and I have made my own share of money mistakes and had a lot of money successes as well. So I love to share those with you. With you. But Susanna, that's a great question, you know, and uh, I've been a financial planner since gosh, probably about 12 or 13 years now, my father has been in the financial industry his whole entire career. And after I got my MBA, uh, you know, I was trying to figure out what to do. And he's like, hey, why don't you come work with me and we'll figure out, you know, whether you like this or not. And I always knew that I had, you know, a love for business. I had run a business when I was in college. And so I felt like I was really good at budgeting. But more than that, like I was really good at figuring out ways to do the same thing, but to do it for less money, which I've learned now this many years later is actually a skill. And that's, you know, what I try to share with you on the podcast as well. But I never started out thinking I was going to become a certified financial planner. In fact, um, I was kind of scared of that because I knew that it entailed this really big test and I just wasn't that great of a test taker. And I just, I just wasn't sure. So It was actually on a whim um, about eight years ago now, oh my gosh, that uh, I decided to, you know, take the courses and I did real like boot camp style courses for being a CFP and that meant I crammed everything that you needed to learn into a six month period and then I went and I sat for the test and I was scared straight. I mean, um, now they do the test computerized, but when I took it, it was you know, sitting at a table for two days, you know, basically anything and everything that you could know about taxes, about insurance, about um, investing, about, uh, I mean, you name it, everything that you could know about finances you had to know for this test. And it was crazy. It was it was a very long journey, but luckily I passed. And, you know, I will tell you that it's definitely been uh, such a great asset for me. You know, having the MBA was a huge leg up for me, but becoming a CFP, you know, put me in in kind of a top echelon. Uh, Of all the CFPs, there's only 80 some thousand of us in the whole United States, only about 23% are female. So you're already in a really unique demographic, I would say, you know, and then those like 40 and under, there's even a smaller amount of number of those. So it's a really interesting position to be in. But I knew that I didn't want to be just a traditional financial planner. I had this whole creative side that was very different. And, you know, not many like financial planners were able to blend together the creativity. It's one of the reasons why I started this podcast, because I just I think I look at things a little bit differently and I look at it from a real creative standpoint. And so, you know, I spent a few years trying to figure out what in the world does that mean? What does that look like? Everybody tried to fit me in this one box of being a financial planner, which meant, you know, I'd have to go work with clients and, you know, maybe I did investments or, you know, all of these different parameters. But I knew that that just wasn't me, that I was very different and that I had a a different skill and a different way of looking at money and looking at budgeting and a lot of the things that we that we take for granted that we think, you know, well, we must know how to do this or everybody else knows how to do this. I started to realize after working with a lot of people with a lot of different incomes that that wasn't the case, that a lot of the things that were happening to people who made millions and millions of dollars were also happening to people who made 30, 40, 50, 60, 70, you name it, thousands of dollars. And 
that, you know, uh, there wasn't a discrimination there and that everybody, you know, really at a base level needed the same sort of inspiration and the same sort of motivation and the same set of tools. And so, you know, I think that's how I started crafting my own career is, is a certified financial planner, but it's different for everybody, you know? Um, but I will say it's been, it's been very unique as a woman. There are a lot of, uh, conferences and rooms and events that I walk in where I am the youngest by many, many years (laughs) and I'm likely the only female. I actually find that completely exhilarating because, uh, it's fun for me. It makes me unique. It puts me in a unique position, but I know there's a lot of young CFPs out there that that don't like that. But I would say, you know what? If you have a market of people, if there are a group of your friends or family, anybody where you can start out practicing your financial planning skills to figure out whether this is something you you really like, it's a great way to kind of dip your toe in the water to figure out, you know, whether you want to take the deep plunge into becoming a CFP and then, you know, from there it's just it's figuring out what in the world you want your career to look like and it looks different for everybody. There are 5 million different versions of what you can do when you're a certified financial planner. And, you know, the hard thing I think is that we think it's just this one thing, you know, that um, you're just this uh, this person who goes and meets with people and you create these plans and, and that's the end of it. But there are so many different iterations of this career, which is what makes it exciting and interesting for me. And then you know, I would say like if you're thinking about a master's degree or certification or anything, it doesn't have to be a CFP. The cool thing is, is that nobody can take that away from you, right? That is a unique skill set that you have that you can use throughout your whole entire life. You can go take a risk on a total dream career. And if it doesn't work out, you still have the skill set and the certification that you can come back to. And that was something that I really loved about it. I recently wrote an article for Go Banking Rates called How I Broke the Mold as a Female Certified Financial Planner. I'll put the link in the show notes. If you're interested, take a read. Um, And Susanna, hopefully I've given you a little bit of a taste. But look, if there's any of you listening who want more information about how you become a financial planner, if it's a career for you, and how in the world do you even make money doing it, please feel free to shoot me an email. I'm happy to answer um, more questions about this because I think it's important that I share my journey with you as well, that I'm not just this person talking in the microphone. But today's podcast is all about two ways of doing money differently. And I love the fact that technology has come along and it has allowed us to save differently, it has allowed us to invest differently, it has allowed us to bank differently, do mortgages differently, buy houses differently. All of these you know, uh, money transactions that, you know, we thought were just this one way, like this is just the way you do it. I love that technology and innovation have come along and said, you know what, there might actually be like a better way of doing things. So today I'm going to talk to Loveline from Bank Mobile and Vishal from Better Mortgage to talk about, you know, two kind of old standard money transactions, right? How you bank and how you actually buy a house. Those are things where those industries haven't been shaken up in the past in the way that they're being shaken up now. And it's really, really exciting. All right, Loveline, I'm so excited to have you on the podcast. I have been a fan of Bank Mobile for quite a while now. So I'm excited to talk about that. But to start off our conversation, you know, you are really as passionate about financial empowerment, financial education for millennials as I am. You know, where does that passion come sure, from? Sure, you know, you? thinking back, it probably comes to the fact that I started my career in 2008 when I graduated from college. And my first day on the job was actually the Lehman bankruptcy. And I was starting my first day at work at Lehman. So I think it was just a great way and, and, and sort of tragic at the same time, but a great way to sort of give me perspective on the fragility of really the financial system as a whole and how that sort of impacts um, so many millions of Americans' lives in terms of their, their financial foundation. And so really starting my career early and seeing that firsthand and wanting to be able to later on make an impact and, and being able to help uh, people have that sort of stability that I saw firsthand sort of be shaken was was really what got me excited about Bank Mobile. 
Yeah, wow, like what a first day, right? And, you know, I think you share a story of, you know, many other millennials of of seeing what happened during that time period, you know, maybe what happened to their parents, their grandparents or relative, uh, or even themselves, you know, if they had money in the market. And I know it definitely has shaped, uh, you know, this generation, especially the younger millennials. What do you guys see in terms of you know, what has happened as a result of 2008, 2009? Are you seeing that, you know, millennials or even your friends are maybe more conservative when it comes to money? Yeah, we definitely saw that trend. Um, We saw debit card increase um, over time and credit card sort of usage decrease in this millennial population. And, And for us, it's really about first establishing that depository relationship on the checking account side and, and being able to provide an account that, number one, is affordable um, and that doesn't rely on charging monthly fees, overdraft fees, requiring minimum balance requirements, et cetera. And I think for those that have become more risk averse because they've sort of lived through this and seen their parents sort of hurt by it, um, really value an authentic, transparent checking account um, that really is, is not going to squeeze them on fees and is really affordable. And it makes sense. I mean, it's what we all should have anyway. You know, I think it's it's crazy that, you know, we've got a lot of people out there paying bank fees that they don't even know they're paying or even know why they're paying them. So I think, you know, having that value and being very authentic is something that particularly millennials can really, you know, latch onto and appreciate. Yeah, no, definitely. And I think that the era that we're in provides us with the ability to do this. So now with the access to exponentially growing technologies, you know, we don't need a branch-based customer acquisition strategy anymore. And the reality is is that the branch-based model is so inefficient and so costly for banks that the only way that they can survive is by charging their customers these fees. And so we were able to start from scratch and, and have no legacy infrastructure. And because we're utilizing technology, we're able to really um, execute on our mission of financially empowering and giving a very affordable, convenient account. Yeah, that's so exciting. So I know you started this bank mobile journey with your father. I've been in business with my father as well. And, uh, mm-hmm. you know, tell me a little bit about, you know, what has this journey been like? What has it been like, you know, working with your father and building something from scratch? Oh, it's been phenomenal to tell you the truth. Um, so my, my dad has actually been in banking uh, for 40 years. And so to be able to combine sort of his experience as a veteran banker with my passion for creating a social mission here, um, with my knowledge of technology and being a millennial myself and, and savvy in those ways and really combining our two expertise and passion um, was really the driving force that I think has made Bank Mobile um, successful to date and and, um, and and hopefully continued growth in the future. Yeah, yeah, that's so great. So, you know, have there been any struggles that you faced along the way being a, a female in the financial space and especially being younger? I mean, I definitely. So I, I try to not keep it um, front of mind because I think that our biggest um, obstacle in life is actually our own mind and our own defeatist sort of attitude. Yes. So I try not to let the reality is, you know, it is a reality in many cases, but I try even not to let the reality feed too much into my mind because as soon as you weaken um, your ability and your confidence, um, I think your ability to p- perform goes down. But I almost try to see how can I create value out of the fact that I am a woman and that I am young um, and use that to my advantage and my advantage to connect with our consumers better, uh, to be more innovative in my approach to the business that we're creating. Uh, to be able to connect with investors and get them excited about the future and show them just how much um, I'm sort of part of this future that we're building this company for. And I think it's actually helped me a lot uh, gain the traction that we have uh, up until today. That's such great insight. I love that you share that. And I think that's just such a positive way to think about your career, think about life. But what about your own money journey? You know, have there been any good or not so good lessons along the way that have really shaped you, you know, personally, professionally that you can share? Yeah. So I think that just like starting a business, you know, is is difficult. So, um, you know, we were lucky in that we started within another company. And so for those that call themselves 
um, you know, entrepreneurs within an organization, you know, for those that are able to provide that sort of um, strategy for themselves, it's a great way to get started and get the capital that you need behind yourself. Uh, Because if you have a great vision and you're able to get the capital you need, it's a great way to get started. On, On a personal side, just going through um, you know, opening my first checking account and learning the basics of money management and understanding the psychological factors of, of money and how they play into your life and your decisioning as well has been very interesting uh, to me and part of the motivation behind, you know, how we create educational content, articles, courses, blog content, um, the way that we visualize your money in the app. Um, all these sort of factors in, in my own journey of how I've perceived money have been helpful in, in sort of delivering that product. Yeah. And what do you think, um, you know, is the is the secret sauce, if you will, to get people motivated to even just start thinking about their finances, maybe in a different way than they have in the past? You know, there's so much stress and fear when it comes to talking about money. It's not a topic we, you know, sit down and talk about with our friends. Mm-hmm. You know, what do you think are are some of the the motivators or, you know, the words of wisdom to get people to open up about this subject? Mm-hmm. You know, it's it's really tough. And, and that's the, the, the code that we're trying to crack. And, and the best answer I can give you in terms of what I've realized to date is people don't want to do this. So how can you make it as easy as possible where you're not requiring them to take action and you sort of feed them the information that they need to become more educated and, and make better behavioral sort of changes from a financial perspective? So can we leverage artificial intelligence and machine learning to see how your movie, how your money is moving in and out of your account um, in terms of bills being paid, in terms of your income coming in, in terms of maybe your cash flow needs and being able to extend credit to you um, and proactively provide you the sort of guidance that you need and that can be helpful in everyday decisioning. And I think that what we've also done is we serve um, a customer base that happens to be more thin credit file individuals mm-hmm. and those that are more near prime individuals. So what we've also done is that in order for them to get credit with us, we provide an advantage in terms of a better rate um, if they have better um, behavior. And so whether they take their our financial credit course, for example, um, and being able to link you know, better rates and, and getting a better product with actually taking good financial um, education seriously and, and making behavioral changes and linking the two. I think it's great. I mean, I, I love that there are companies like Bank Mobile where you're not just offering a product, you know, you're offering also a, a solution and education because, you know, the reality is that people aren't learning about financial education, about financial literacy, you know, and we've got millennials graduating with massive amounts of student loan debt, and we just kind of send them out there and, and let them try to figure it out on their own, you know, and it's, it's a problem that's not getting better. Unfortunately, it's, it's, it's getting worse, you know? No, a hundred percent. And then I think it actually goes back to, you know, education environments, being able to have courses, et cetera, in their curriculum. And I've been reading more and more articles where, you know, basics of finances aren't being taught in colleges and, and going into high school even beforehand. And how can we as a bank, um, and as you get that depository relationship, incorporate education into that product offering uh, to really sort of force that upon you and and be helpful right up from the front so you can start getting that education earlier in your journey. Yeah, I love that. So, you know, there's been a lot of noise lately about, you know, Bank of America and the the fees that they're charging. Anybody has less than $1,500 in their account or doesn't have a monthly deposit of $250. Um, you know, and it's it's also a time where banks are benefiting potentially from the new tax plan. And, you know, they're, they're still sadly hiking up the fees, you know, for their own profit instead of really helping, especially these younger customers. You know, what do listeners need to know about their own bank accounts? Uh, you know, and what is Bank Mobile doing different to change this this conversation? Yeah, no, it's a great question. And and we definitely have reached out to our customers as well. And one thing is to just make them knowledgeable about what's happening. And I think the media, to be honest, is helping with this because I don't think there's anyone or that many people that haven't heard of sort of the Wells Fargo fiasco or the bank, the Bank of America um, situation that you're just talking about where they're charging $12 a month for, for their checking account. 
um, when, when you're getting the tax break incentive. So I think number one is education. And we are saving our customers annually $62 million a year in fees um, as relative to if they wow. go to a competitor. And so letting them know that this is the advantage and, and how much you're saving on a per account basis and how that affects them, um, especially as they're in school, because a lot of our student, you know, customer base are students and being able to leverage a couple thousand dollars more per year could be very helpful. And so we've made it very apparent in our in our marketing and our communication where it doesn't come off as sleazy. It's being very authentic. Like we're here to help you and financially empower you. And and here's the reality. And this is how much we're able to save you by using our products and services relative to the competitors. Yeah, you know, in the in the argument sometimes is like, well, it's it's only twelve dollars I'm paying. And you know, I always fire back, but it's twelve dollars times twelve months times how many years, you know, and I'm sure there's something you would much rather do with that money than just give it to your bank. Exactly. And, and I mean, if it's just $12, I mean, you could get your Netflix account, you could get your Hulu account. Wouldn't you prefer getting that and paying that money instead of to your bank for keeping your money? Yeah, I, I mean, my answer is always going to be yes, absolutely. So, uh, you know, I get a lot of questions from listeners. There's still some skepticism out there about mobile banking, you know, not being able to touch and feel your bank. And yet the irony is that, you know, most millennials do almost everything from their cell phone anyway. You know, that's that's their life. What are some of the the features about bank mobile that that make you unique and and also, you know, what would you say about that skepticism? Yeah, no, firstly it's understandable and I can see where they're coming from. Um, but if you look at the mobile phone, for example, it actually provides layers of security that you can't get otherwise. For example, biometrics and authentication that can come with that, uh, geolocation capabilities that come with that. Now you have the face ID with the new, with the new iPhone. And, and so with these sort of ability to layer on these extra security factors um, because of the technology that comes with a mobile device, you're actually able to create a greater level of security in many cases than you would um, otherwise. And then two, being, make sure that you're with an FDIC-insured institution. And so for Bank Mobile, we have a bank charter. We are FDIC-insured. And if there is ever any fraud on your account, um, number one, we are very proactive in being able to notify it and identify it even before uh, a con consumer would. And you build trust that way to be able to proactively um, let your customer know when that is the case. But with FDIC insurance, with reggie regulations, we will always be refunding that money back to to the consumer under fraudulent cases. Yeah, that's so fantastic. So if a listener is interested in signing up for a bank mobile account, what do they need to know? What's the process like for them? Yeah, so you can just go um, to our app store and, and, and look up bank mobile and you'd be able to onboard and, and, and become an account. We offer checking account, savings account, a line of credit, uh, personal loans, um, and we're, we're actually just launching for our student base right now an interest-bearing checking account, which is great because going back to empowering our customers, you know, we already have a great savings rate on our savings account, but the reality of our demographic is many of them are living paycheck to paycheck, and they're not earning any interest on that money that they're going to have to spend um, in, their, in their checking account. And so we're really excited to be launching that in, in February. And so people can actually make money off of money they're going to have to spend and can't and can't keep protected in their savings account. Oh, I love that. That's awesome. All right, lovely. This has been a, such a great conversation. Uh, one last question. If you could list, leave the listeners with one piece of financial wisdom, what would it be? Well, I think, you know, I was actually listening to Tony Robinson in his podcast uh, recently about a book that he just wrote called Unshakable that's about financial freedom and, and, and how to really make um, a, you know, a strong financial foundation. And his last chapter was real wealth. And I just want to sort of leave with more of the spiritual, emotional, um, and, and sort of the real wealth that you develop um, in, in sort of the happiness and the abundance that, that your life really creates by creating that debt balance um, can really help you and, and sort of attract in different ways the financial, the true financial wealth um, in terms of monetary value and, and, and other treasures that are much, much broader and, and bigger than that. So that came to mind, actually, as I was just listening to that podcast. So I would love to share that with, with um, the viewers. 
When it comes to financial advice, you got to trust the source. It's why you listen to this podcast. When I'm looking to upgrade my wallet, I turn to NerdWallet. Their expert team of nerds dives into the details to help you find smarter financial products. Before NerdWallet, I was paying for vacations all wrong. (laughs) I was missing out on miles. I didn't even know I was leaving on the table. Now I've got a new card with more miles and more upgrades. What could future you do with more travel rewards? I don't know, maybe that fancy hotel upgrade that you have always been dreaming about. Wherever you go next, make it happen with a smarter travel credit card. Don't wait to make smart financial decisions. Compare and find smarter credit cards, savings accounts, and more today at nerdwallet.com. NerdWallet. Finance smarter. As with all cards, credit is subject to lender approval and terms apply. The weather is getting warmer. I'm so excited. And it is time to say goodbye to all those jackets and sweaters and hello to the shorts and t-shirts. I wanted to update my summer workout wardrobe for the long haul without, you know, spending a fortune. Luckily, I found Quince and I am in love. Quince is your go-to place from everything from premium European linen dresses, blouses and shorts from $30, washable silk tops, timeless, 14 karat gold jewelry, and so much more. The best part of all, all Quince items are priced 50 to 80% less than similar brands. By partnering directly with top factories, Quince cuts out the cost of the middleman and passes those savings on to you. And Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing practices and premium fabrics and finishes. I love that. Okay, I bought the dreamiest pair of workout leggings and a bright pink workout top to match. Honestly, ladies, I gotta tell you, these leggings you need. The price cannot be beat, and I feel like a million bucks wearing this cozy workout friendly outfit. I've worn it for like five days straight. Get warm weather ready with Quince. Go to quince.com slash etm for free shipping on your order and 365 day returns. That's q-u-i-n-c-e dot com slash etm to get free shipping and 365 day returns. Quince.com slash etm. Okay, friend, I want to know, what are your money goals this year? Are you saving to buy a house or maybe a wedding? or a dream vacation to somewhere tropical. If that's you, please, please take me with you. Or maybe you want to just grow your emergency fund because, let's be real, life is expensive. I want to make sure you reach your goals, so you need Monarch. That's why the Wall Street Journal named it the best app for growing your savings. Monarch is the top-rated, all-in-one personal finance app. It gives you a comprehensive view of all your accounts, investments, transactions, and more. You can create custom budgets, track progress towards your financial goals, and collaborate with your partner. And now, get an extended 30-day free trial when you go to monarchmoney.com etm. Here's what I love. Monarch is the most customizable budgeting app. You can change the layout of your dashboard. You can go between light and dark mode. You can create custom budgets and notifications. You can set up all of these automatic rules for your transactions and notifications and so much more. Monarch is obsessed with constantly improving their product. Get this, they release updates every two weeks and they even allow customers to submit suggestions, vote on requested features, and view the product roadmap. This, my friend, is totally original. Plus, they will never sell your data to third party or show you ads. I think that's really important. After trying out Monarch for myself, I understand why it is the top-rated personal finance app. And now, listeners of this show get an extended 30-day free trial when you go to monarchmoney.com slash etm. That's M-O-N-A-R-C-H-M-O-N-E-Y dot com slash etm for your extended 30-day free trial. Hey, my name's Otis Gray, host of The Daily Book Club a daily podcast where I read wonderful old books one chapter at a time. Simple as that. Whether you want to get engaged and lost in a fascinating story that has stood the test of time, or just relax to a good book, listen to The Daily Book Club to get wrapped up or unwind during your day. We'll read classic stories like Pride and Prejudice, The Enchanted April, The Wind in the Willows, beautiful stories all told from start to finish. And you can even do a real book club. Tune into the Daily Book Club Discord and discuss the readings with other book club listeners. However you want to listen, it's your choice. 
Subscribe to The Daily Book Club on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and everywhere else. New episodes every single day. So sit back, relax, and get lost in The Daily Book Club. So now that we're thinking a little bit differently about our bank account with Bank Mobile, how should we be thinking about, you know, when we go buy our first home? So you have quite an interesting, diverse background, Bishal. And what I really want to know to start off the interview today is what motivates you each morning to get up and keep innovative? Uh, thanks. That's a really great question. Uh, what motivates me every morning uh, to get up and keep innovating is the fact that uh, I was able to leverage technology and my understanding of finance to uh, elevate my socioeconomic status. And the first thing that I remember when I was 21 and I finally achieved some economic independence, thankfully, due to the first dot-com bubble, uh, was that, oh, my God, look at – how do I help all these people that, you know, quote-unquote, I, I didn't get as lucky as me? Or that I left behind first, you know, in India and then in Queens, New York. Like, how do I help the kids that I were my best friends growing up in elementary, junior high school, high school, um, you know, who didn't have the advantages that I was able to get. And that, you know, when it comes down to what we do today at Better.com is how do we help a new generation of homeowners, uh, you know, 80 percent who want to own a home actually access it? because only 35% of them have been able to do that. And uh, so, you know, when we think about core human needs, education, homeownership, the desire to control the roof over your head or where you sleep at night, um, that's very, very basic. It's like what allows you to have socioeconomic mobility. It gives you stability. uh, It gives you a place to raise your children. All those things is very, very super personal things, but all the things that create economic certainty that then allow for innovation. So uh, that's what, and every day I wake up and I'm like, no matter how bad of a day it is, the <laughs> fact that I could help a hundred people or a thousand people access their ability to make their socioeconomic futures better, that makes everything better just for me. Yeah. It makes the day awesome. I'm so right there with you. Um, you know, I, I sort of feel like if we all do our part, you know, somehow we'll all collectively be able to, you know, make some like real change with with lots of things where, you know, people aren't getting opportunities or people aren't getting education or um, people just don't have access to, you know, hearing these different concepts and ideas for sure. Uh, Totally. And, you know, I think what you do with the Millennium Money podcast, really breaking down money and, you know, people's credit, people's capital and make it consumable for this generation is super, super awesome. So I'm so happy to be on this show. Oh, thank you so much. Yeah, I just, uh, you know, my goal, probably a lot like what your goal is, is to make this stuff approachable so that, you know, money isn't this scary topic. And uh, I really feel, you know, if you can help people figure out how to fund their dreams, no matter how much money is in their bank account, that, you know, it gives people this the sense of freedom. So I, I would imagine that's a little bit what your mission is with Better Mortgage, too. Uh, totally. Uh, you know, unfortunately they don't teach compound interest in high school. Um, and so we're here trying to make it easier for them, uh, for everyone and, you know, help them understand how a couple of core numbers, uh, a couple of core concepts affect their ability to own a home for their family, one that they raise their children in. Yeah. So tell me a little bit about your journey to better mortgage. What has kind of your career path been like that's led you up to, to starting better mortgage? So, uh, you know, I when I first started working, I, I wanted to get a job that would elevate my socioeconomic status. So I started working on Wall Street and started using data to help uh, make better trading decisions in both equities and fixed income securities. I found that to be economically rewarding, but not emotionally fulfilling. <laughs> and uh, so I actually started the first online student loan company. It was a company called MyRichUncle.com uh, in the uh, in the dot com era. Uh, I took it public when I was like 26 uh, and then eventually sold it to to Merrill Lynch. And um, and, and basically uh, from there, I learned like how powerful that emotion is to be able to do something great for the consumer to both help them save money and make a better purchasing decision around a major life event like getting a, a getting into college and, and being able to pay for it. Um, and then from there, 
I was, you know, post the credit crisis uh, happening, uh, you know, Bank of America bought Merrill Lynch. They shut my rich uncle down um, and I was sort of a free bird. So I started helping uh, and figuring out, you know, with, with the credit crisis, hey, can I help these financial institutions take social data to be able to create better workouts on mortgages and student loans? And I was doing that. It was fairly successful. It was like we were managing over six billion dollars. And I went to go get a mortgage myself. I got older. I had I got married. Uh, we had a kid. We were still living in my old bachelor pad. And <laughs> then it was coming time to like pick schools. And so we we're like, okay, well, we're going to pick a school that we're going to know that we're going to be living there for six years or seven years. So why should I pay my landlord's mortgage? We should just go and get our own place. And so my wife and I began searching. And ultimately, we, the process around getting a mortgage was so broken that we ended up losing the ideal place that we wanted to buy to an all-cash buyer. And that felt like super unfair, the idea that you know we had been good citizens, we'd saved up, we had good credit, and ultimately what we were bidding, because the mortgage process was so uncertain and broken, we were bidding with all these contingencies, like a mortgage contingency, appraisal contingency, all these things, and ultimately there was somebody else who was just willing to pay cash. And we lost that to that person, even though that they were willing to pay almost like on, on a New York City apartment, 8% less. And that that was like, wow, why is the mortgage process still stuck as in the Internet was never invented? Right. Because yeah. my entire process started with like LendingTree.com, where my personal information got sold to like 60 different mortgage banks. And my phone blew up like as if I had like a bad case of high school acne. Right. <laughs> over and over and again, people calling me and asking me to like give them their social security number over the phone. And I was like, I'm not going to do that. I'll type it in. Somewhere do you have something online? It's like no, and 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 I was like, wow, how is this so bad? And what, then I was actually in a place where I could go and fix that process and understand a little bit about the mortgage industry. And I understood basically the entire industry basically works for itself, right? So you have like it either works for investors or it works for like your neighborhood realtor or it works for like the commission loan broker, but it does not work for the consumer. So I thought, wow, like here's this $15 trillion business that operates as if the consumer doesn't matter, but ultimately it's the consumer that pays that bill over the course of 30 years. And if you think about what happened with the credit crisis, there are all these bad intermediaries or intermediaries that were incentivized to cheat or lie in the process. And people said, oh, the American homeowner, you know, overlevered themselves. Actually, fundamentally, all these intermediaries gave the consumer bad data and bad, you know, and, and, and created a process that advantaged them over the consumer. And so I was like, no way, that makes no sense. Um, if I have such a terrible time getting a mortgage, imagine what, a, you know, a regular consumer does. And I saw there's just an opportunity, 12 million people were going through this every year. And were we going to have another credit crisis because nobody was going to create a better process? So I was like, each time as I was going through the process, I was like, God, this sucks. <laughs> this should be so much better. Why isn't this better? And ultimately, I just decided to start a company, called it better.com and said, you know, let me let me make it better. And that's what we've been doing. Yeah. I mean, you brought up so many good points. You know, I'm, I'm in Los Angeles and, you know, I know firsthand about the uh, the cash buying situation. You know, I think if you're in any major market these days, you know, it's it's tough to compete, um, you know, and, and a lot of younger millennials that have student loan debt or, you know, maybe their career hasn't been as accelerated just because of the economy and, you know, competing for other people or jobs. You know, there's a, there's a lot of... Um, you know, barriers to entry, let alone, you know, saving up for a down payment. And, you know, I think there's just, there's so much confusion around this process. You know, when, when you were thinking about how to fix that broken system, where, where did you even begin to start that? Well, well, one of the things that we did, you're totally right, right? So all of those are big problems. So ultimately what we did was we actually took over a mortgage bank, uh, like an existing one, and so that we could study it inside out, kind of like how mm. Tesla took over like the old like Lotus car factory. So you actually see the entire process and then you can say, oh, actually, this is a point of friction that the industry doesn't understand as a point of friction. This is a point of friction that like the industry does a poor job of communicating about. Or this is a point of friction where there's somebody who's like got their th thumb on a button and that person just needs and, you know, it's paying for them and that person just needs to go. And so what we've done is. Um, you know, ultimately to break it down, there's a whole bunch of things that you identified as issues, right? So one, you know, uh, but all of those issues really revolve around three main things that the industry 
and investors care about to uh, when when they think about the loan. So first is your credit score, mm-hmm. and the second is your debt to income ratio, which is the amount of like loans that you have and your monthly payment on those loans, you know, divided by your income, your monthly stable income, your DTI, and then the house that you're going to buy and how much the value of that house is uh, relative to how much you're borrowing against it, the LTV. And that starts, and and all three of those numbers, which are the core three numbers behind like mortgage math and determine how much you're going to pay for that house for the next 30 years could mean like on a place in LA, which may be like a six, $700,000 place, literally the difference could be $100,000 in how much you pay based on those three numbers. We started to say, how do these three numbers get affected by the issues that millennials face today? So thinking about like what you talked about in LA, um, high rents. So that means people are spending their money paying rent, especially amongst the millennials that are living in urban areas, which is where they tend to live, right? So high rents means they're not gonna save as much for their down payment. They actually have a history though of being able to make a certain monthly payment. So how can we take the history that they have of being able to make a certain monthly payment, which then is in, and their ability to pay their debts, like their student loan debt, which is what they've been paying down, and then say, actually, maybe they don't need 20% down, right? right. Uh, because the money has that they used to be able to save for their down payment in their, like it used to be like you'd get a student loan to go to school, school costs 10 to $20,000 a year, and you'd be able to pay off that student loan uh, by, between the ages of like 21 and 30. And then between the age of 30 and 35, 38, you'd be able to save for your down payment. Now people are taking up to like age 40, 45 to pay off their student loans because all that savings that would have happened is going to there. So let's cut that out. Let's uh, allow first-time home buyers who have good credit and who have good earnings capacity to actually make a down payment as little as 3%. And let's find the best uh, ways to finance that, right? And not charge them extra for doing that. And that's through surfacing, you know, first time home buyer programs that Fannie Mae and the government sponsored enterprises have not like just by creating, you know, and, and product the, the then the second right. thing is, you know, you said even people with a good career, mm-hmm. um, even people with a good career and you have a job at like, uh, Google or Microsoft or Tesla, you're not getting paid the same way as if you were like a banker at JP Morgan or a consultant at McKinsey, you're getting paid in things like restricted stock units or, options. So how do we do that? Or if you've got a separate, if you, if you've managed to get a a great career as like an engineer and you're now like getting a bunch of 1099s because you're, you're effectively a consultant. Um, the mortgage industry is terrible at dealing with people with any kind of income. That's not like straight down the middle. Like I'm a vice president at general mills. right? Right. And you know, um, so we are able to take that data and manifest it digitally and collect it because unlike a commission loan officer who wants a straight down the middle candidate, we're perfectly fine with our purely online process of ingesting that data directly from the source so we know it's true, right? And we don't, you know, we're not thinking that it's fraud or discounting it more than it should be worth and actually being able to evidence that. So we can finance people who have RSUs, we can finance people who have a lot of 1099 income or a side hustle, and we're able to include all that income in the underwriting process, which helps you then A, afford more, lower your debt to income ratio, and B, uh, you know, qualify for a lower rate. Uh, so I think th- those are those are some ways in that we've been able to uh, surface the, the problems and then create solutions that the rest of the mortgage industry is very, very far behind on. And why do you think they're far behind? I mean, is this is this, you know, kind of pioneering territory or is this just something where, you know, this is just the way most mortgage companies have done it in the past and they're not budging? Um, I would say the first big problem is, is that most that ninety nine point nine percent of mortgage companies, the person you talk to on the phone, the mortgage loan officer is a commissioned salesperson right. and is frequently like. You know, at some of the bigger places we've heard, like Quicken, you're making 600 outbound phone calls a day. That's your daily quota. So, <laughs> and most of it's robocalled, and you hope to maybe talk to 50 people. Now, if you can imagine you're making 600 outbound calls and you're talking to 50 people, what are you going to try to do? You're going to try to convert those people and sell them rather than sort of empower them with information that fits specifically. And two, what are you going to try to do? 
if you actually connect with that person, since you're paid a commission, an average loan officer in a mortgage bank is paid a commission of about one and a quarter percent of the loan amount. You're going to try to go after people with the largest loan amount. So if I'm getting paid one and a quarter percent for a million dollar loan, and for me, the work is the same as a one and a quarter percent, that's a lot more than I'm going to focus on the million dollar loan rather than the $300,000 loan, right? Sure. Uh, it's just a law of large numbers. So they're entirely focused on people who are doing jumbos or who are going after larger loan amounts, and they have an incentive to have you borrow more. And lastly, they're also paid on how much money uh, the mortgage company makes on the loan. So basically, the higher your rate, the more they implicitly get paid. So you have a mortgage ecosystem filled with commission loan brokers, um, you know, up and down the food chain at Quicken, at Loan Depot, all these guys advertising digital to like the traditional banks, Wells Fargo, City, Chase, all those guys. And they're all incentivized to get you into the highest loan amount and highest cost loan possible uh, because that's how they're, they're compensated. So unless you have a brand new start and we're the almost the only company in America that has a non-commission loan consultants uh, force. So we are, you call us, you wor work with our folks, they don't get any compensation, right, on the loan amount, on the loan rate, or whatever. Uh, they're compensated with bonuses solely on customer satisfaction. It is very much like a Apple genius, right, and yeah, how they behave yeah. versus like, the, you know, if you might remember 10 years ago, like the dude at the cell phone store sure. who kept on like trying to get you from like move from like AT&T to Verizon and then back, right? And, 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 and that's just like, <laughs> that's what we're dealing with. And and I think there's almost a generational challenge because you have a generation in the 2000s that was taught to buy the biggest house they could get. Yes. And they were like willing to pay people to get them the biggest house. And we're a generation that saw the credit crisis in front of us. Our friends lost jobs. Our parents lost jobs. Some people lost their home. Um, there was, you know, unemployment for a little while. We remember we might have had a friend who was like protesting on Occupy Wall Street at Ducati Park. And, you know, we're like we're fundamentally distrustful of these institutions. We don't want to be sold. We want to be uh, empowered and enabled. And I think that's the uh, for all the people that want to take the process online. I think fundamentally it's like the translation layer is entirely broken and we're fixing that. Yeah, I love that. That's awesome. So before we kind of dive into a little bit more of the nuts and bolts of Better Mortgage, you know, if somebody's listening to this episode and, you know, they're thinking about starting the process of buying the first home, like what should they get in order first? Are there specific things they should really focus on before they would, you know, reach out? Yeah, I think the number one thing that they should figure out is how much house can I actually afford? Right. Because what's it, it's like, I don't you know, when I was 18, I didn't go to Neiman Marcus to go buy stuff that I couldn't afford, right? Like, and it just doesn't make sense, right? So how much house can you actually afford? So you can go on better.com before you go first, in, in the amount of time it will take you to like do a ride share to your first open house, you literally in three minutes, you can get a pre-approval from better.com that can show you the how much house you can afford. And you'll be able to afford more with better.com because we also have the rate guarantee. So we guarantee we have the lowest rates in every market and every across every product we operate in. Um, and so one, you can figure that out. Now you're starting your search from a knowledgeable perspective. And then from there, we work, we, 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 we can help you find a good realtor. If you're not able to find one yourself, if you have someone you love, that's great. Um, you know, go see houses with them that you can actually afford. Once you find your dream house, come back to better.com and actually put in the data. We'll value that house for you. We'll pre-appraise it for you before you put in an offer. And so you can actually uh, bid like a cash buyer. You can know you're totally able to fund that loan. Better will guarantee your earnest money deposit, which is the deposit you have to put down when you put in a bid for a house. And if, so that we can't close up to $50,000 if you can't close. And we'll turn you into a cash buyer. Uh, which will help you save money and stand out from the competition. So, you know, we, we think that that's a great pathway uh, when you're a, when you're house shopping. Yeah, absolutely. Very, very interesting. Yeah, I was going to ask you, you know, how, how do you compete with the cash buyers? But right there, you just uh, you just solve the problem. Yeah, I, I mean, and honestly, it's a problem I felt right. And in New York, it was literally 8%. Can you imagine 8%? Uh, someone bought a house for 8% less than what I did. Right. And so if you can go through this process and literally in 20 minutes, transform yourself into a cash buyer, that's uh, that's pretty cool. 
Um, the the other thing I would I would tell you to a, a, a typical person to do is you know there are a bunch of myths that you're going to encounter along the way because uh, fundamentally the existing ecosystem doesn't know a lot about what is actually possible, right? They're operating as if it's 1973. <laughs> and so like you don't need 20% down to buy. Your landlord doesn't use 20% down to buy that building. So like realistically, what you should do is you should figure out what you can afford and have a capability to afford, right? And stop paying rent to your landlord and start paying rent to yourself. And, you know, so that's, that's the first myth. The second is a lot of people say, oh, I already have all the student loan debt. And, uh, you know, why do I want to take on like even more debt? Like this idea of debt is, well, debt is supposed to be credit is, you know, debt is crushing. Credit is empowering. Yes. Credit to buy an asset that has long term sustainable value that will appreciate that you'll be able to use to finance your kids education and their retirement, and all this sort of stuff. That's fundamentally empowering. And so in a lot of cases, actually, there are even products where you can roll your student loan debt into your mortgage and figure out a way to finance it um, and actually get a much cheaper rate. So don't let the idea that you have the student loan debt um, that you're a little salty about, right? Crush your dreams of a homeowner ownership and like asset creation and wealth creation. Um, and then the other thing is like homeownership done right is valuable. Yes, if you buy a house that you can't afford and you lie on your application and do a bunch of other things and you get sold it by a like a bad realtor who then uses a bad appraiser. That's what happened in the credit crisis in 2007, 2008, 2009. But you shouldn't let that stop you, right? Just right. like the dot-com bubble didn't stop people from investing in stocks, and now there's just a better way through companies like Betterment, Wealthfront, Acorns, and all that. You just need a modern company, with which is really actually truly on your side to be part of that process um, so that you can enjoy all the benefits of socioeconomic mobility and capital, wealth building, that uh, that homeownership provides, but without all of the costs that are traditionally associated with. Yeah, and I think that's really great that you point out the difference between debt and really looking at home buying as as a credit, uh, you know, advancement type purchase if it's done the right way. Because I I don't think that's something that you know a lot of people talk about. We live. In this world now, you know, I, I don't know if you read many blogs, but, you know, mm -hmm. there's this huge trend in the financial world where, you know, people are talking about, you know, how they paid off this massive amount of debt. And now all of a sudden, you know, they're perfect. This is the idea of perfection. And, you know, it's putting a lot of stress on people that they have to not have any debt, not know, owe anyone anything, you know, and, uh, you know, from a certified financial planner perspective, you know, that doesn't always accelerate you forward. Yeah, no, credit, if done right, has been the key to socioeconomic mobility for as long as humans have been around, right? Like, otherwise, there would only be rich farmers who own all the land, right? <laughs> Nobody else would be able to get money to buy seeds to, like, make a crop. So it, like, there is credit that's, I think, credit is empowering, debt is debilitating, it, how you get it, the process by which you get it, how much you understand about it, uh, what you use it for has a big impact on whether it's debt or, cr or credit. Yeah, absolutely. So, okay, the person's gone out, they've figured out how much house they can buy. Um, they're coming back to better.com. What's the process like from, from that? They've identified the house to, you know, actually getting the mortgage. Uh, sure. So once you've got, identified the house that uh, you want to buy, what we'll, we'll do is we'll create, uh, we'll, we'll give you, we'll empower you with a valuation that's an independent valuation of that particular property and how much we'll lend against it, right? Because we're in it with you along, uh, for the next 30 years, right? If you really think about it, everybody else is going to be there and then gone at the time of closing. We're there after closing with you. Then from there, uh, we take, we get a few more documents from you. Uh, you know, we'll ask you to just give us either permission via an API through uh, verify that you have the money for the down payment to know that your income is stable and then we go, you know, or, you know, if it, even if it's volatile, that it has, you know, an up, you know, some kind of trajectory uh, that we can underwrite to, we'll automatically take all that data, we'll run it through our machine and within, you know, once we, we allow you to lock your rate so then you can be confident on that day itself that you've decided that you bought to buy this house and make an offer that you, you know exactly how much you're going to pay for credit because, you know, a small movement in interest rates can have an impact that, um, you know, can change your monthly payment from $100, $200. So you want to lock that rate in. So you got that. And then from there, uh, we'll get the, you know, get an appraisal done if you need one, uh, you know, coordinate title. We'll do all those things in the background. So it's like seamless for you 
And then at the end, like you decide when you want to move in and we'll, we'll send a notary and get it closed. Um, all while like totally honoring the commitment that we made uh, day one when you came to us for that pre-approval and day two when you came with us, came to us with a house that once you found the house that you love. Right. So, so, so pretty seamless, right? Almost entirely seamless. Like, so to give you some sense of timelines, unlike traditional mortgage banks, which might take you three weeks, or even some of the online guys like, uh, you know, Rocket or Loan Depot will like take three days to do this uh, and, and like 30 phone calls. Like you can get a pre-approval on our site in as little as three minutes. You can, if you know the house that you want to live in, get lock your rate for the next 30 years in 20 minutes. Um, wow. And then from there, the rest of it, you probably have to spend half an hour to an hour just getting us permissions or, uh, you know, or, or, or uploading some, some documents. And the rest of the stuff we take care of entirely on our own so that you can have a stressful closing. Yeah. Stressless closing. That is fantastic. Um, I bought a house uh, many, many years ago, and it was it was not stressless. I can tell you that for sure. Uh, there were a lot of moving pieces that at the time I had no idea, you know, what they were or what was going on. So, you know, I'm a big fan of anything that makes this process um you know, seamless is is a great word to use. I think that's awesome. Um, you know, I know that there's a lot of people listening to this podcast who are going to ask this question. You kind of you kind of um, commented on it earlier, but you know, this is the generation of entrepreneurs of of you know the Airbnb hosts, the side hustles, all of those sorts of things that normally will disqualify you in a you know if you will for a traditional loan. How do you look at you know those different factors to figure out you know how much house somebody can afford? Oh, that, that's an awesome question. You know, one of the things that we're trying to do at Better is how to represent your past in a better way so that you can make your present better. And so an Airbnb, someone who's got their income on Airbnb previously, they would actually be penalized for having renting a part of their house on Airbnb. We now are actually able to take that data feed directly from Airbnb and automatically qualify you for a loan that is probably about half a percentage point cheaper than the, what you would have gotten previously uh, working directly with Fannie Mae. So think of us as simply like almost like a Stripe or like PayPal like interface on top of a far cheaper source of money than you would have traditionally been able to get. And, you know, working directly with Fannie Mae to make that happen. So we've taken something that was previously disempowering and actually made it empowering. And now we're able to count that income in your in your mortgage. Similarly, we're going to be working with a number of other companies, right, that are in the sort of side hustle uh, area to be able to manifest that the consumer is actually being able to do this. This side hustle is great because quite honestly, that's a consumer that is being entrepreneurial, that if they have an economic issue, they can do more of that side hustle. It's not like, you know, they work in a steel factory and the steel factory shuts down and they're done. Right. right. And so it's actually really terrific. And so we're manifesting that, you know, with our with some of the work that we do with self-employed and 1099 borrowers and being able to like help them cast the income in a stable sense or to be able to showcase it, uh, you know, at, as being a additional source of income when their current or day job is not as productive or isn't, isn't making them as much money. So we're able to do a lot of that because by taking out all these third party intermediaries in the process, by making the loan process much more efficient, we can actually spend the time to invest on these um, exceptions cases or smaller cases. Uh, and it's actually a lot more meaningful for us to do that because um, unlike a Chase or a Wells Fargo or somebody like that's like 100 times bigger, they don't really care. They're happy with just doing the traditional like, you know, vice president at IBM. Um, that's right. what they prefer to do. That's what they're trained to do. Our machine's trained to, uh, to, to actually be able to handle the full range of cases. And then all of the team members really love the idea of helping somebody when – others weren't able to help them. Vishal, thank you so much for sharing all this. Let the listeners know, uh, you know, we've said it before on the podcast, but let them know where they can go to find out more and uh, if they're ready to start searching for their house, how they can get that process started. Uh, thank you so much for having me. I mean, I think the path to homeownership begins now. If you're renting, go on better.com, figure out, you know, in three minutes, how much house you can credibly afford, go looking and become your own landlord. Hopefully, if anything, this podcast has just opened your eyes to the idea that there can be a lot of these big money transactions, a lot of these big money goals that we have 
then maybe we can just do a little bit differently, that we can do a little bit better, if you will. Maybe we could do it uh, for a little less money. I mean, I think that's all what we want at the end of the day. And if anything, hopefully this podcast just helped open your eyes to the idea that, again, maybe there's just a different way. As always, you can follow me on Twitter and Instagram at Shauna Game. And if you love this podcast, hey, do me a favor, share it with your friends, shout it out on social media, and head on over to that link in the show notes to leave us a five-star review. America, we are endowed by our creator, with certain unalienable rights, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. At Grand Canyon University, we believe in equal opportunity, and the American dream starts with purpose. To serve others in ways that promote human flourishing and create a ripple effect of transformation for generations to come, find your purpose at Grand Canyon University. Private. Christian. Affordable. Visit gcu.edu. This is the story of the one. As head of maintenance at a concert hall, he knows the show must always go on. That's why he works behind the scenes, ensuring every light is working, the HVAC is humming, and his facility shines. With Granger's supplies and solutions for every challenge he faces, plus 24-7 customer support, his venue never misses a beat. Call quickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done.